Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 95th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows that trolls have always been the worst creature type. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', back from being freshly married. We're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey guys, glad to be here with this uh, new ring, very heavy ring. Uh, <laughs> looking forward <laughs> to being back and all the interesting stuff we have this week. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what's on the agenda today? Uh, this week... James, a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. We'll look at the cards that have moved the most in price this week. And boy, let me tell you, you can tell we are coming up on Christmas. Uh, Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will outline some cards we think may rise in price over over in the future. Uh, Segment three is our metagame we can review. We'll talk briefly about the Star City Modern Classic over in Baltimore. And finally, our topic of the week. We have a couple topics that we're going to touch on. Uh, Eternal... uh, iconic masters maybe check in on bitcoin and the latest um contra- uh, i'm gonna say controversy but i'm probably it's probably not accurate the latest event in the magic community yeah, space not sure how controversial not, it is really yeah exactly okay so let's start off uh segment one our top movers um james why don't you get us started there sure so first on our list this week is the foil copies of ring of gix uh, this is the card from Urza's Destiny, no, Urza's Legacy, um, moving from about $95 to $115 for just short of a 20% gain. Um, this is one of uh, several cards on the reserve list that were kind of wave two or three of the targeted uh, options. This is kind of a poor man's uh, icy manipulator. Doesn't see a huge amount of play anyway, anywhere, but the, doesn't hasn't stopped the foils from those first couple of uh, sets. Uh, in Magic's foil history from uh, appreciating significantly throughout the year. Um, I'm actually holding a foil Japanese copy that I got uh, online. Um, I think it was from MTG Tokyo, I want to say, for an extremely low price. Um, So I'm curious to see if it will sell at some point in the next few months on eBay at at some ridiculous number. That's, uh, That's a pretty nice little pickup there. Yeah, I think there was a there was a foil Japanese treachery as well, um, also underpriced at the time. Um, but I saw somebody having trouble moving one of those on Twitter, so we'll see. Um, I my experience with these kind of cards is that you end up holding them for you know months to single digit years, and then pop they they just sell one day and you're pleasantly surprised. Yes, yeah, and I I think I saw the same guy trying to get rid of that um, that treachery, but. You know, you can spend forever trying to sell them and then suddenly have a buyer and you only need the one. Um, But yeah, I mean, that just goes to show that that stuff tends not to be liquid, uh, even if it is the true value. Yeah, that's why when you you get in on, you know, you're in the mopping up phase of one of these specs, this is, you know, the perfect opportunity to pick up a low number 
Um, not the kind of thing that anybody ever orders as a four of. So you don't want to be holding yeah. 50 copies of them, even if you could find yeah. them, which you can't. Right, right. Um, okay, so next on our list is Custody Squire. I am looking at the conspiracy copies of a comet. Uh, foils specifically started the week at a dollar fifty, climbed up to like two fifty ish. Uh, cheapest copy available right now appears to be three fifty seven. Um, if you're paying the shipping, this is the uh, five mana three three with flyer white card. Um, it, when it comes into play, you will a council, and everyone chooses artifact creature or enchantment. And return each card with the most votes or tied for the most votes. So basically, you cast this card, you choose artifact, creature, or enchantment, and you are very likely to get that card type back. Although I guess if you're playing with like four people, you could pick creature and your opponents pick enchantment. So you have to take enchantment. In any case, it's a white card that returns permanence to your hand. Um, I guess this, you know, conspiracy now is something like three years old, two years old, two and a half. Uh, and there's not very many foil copies of this card left on TCG player. I'm seeing like six or seven. So I think this is just finding its way into people's EDH decks. Uh, and you know, it's quietly been getting picked up here and there and here and there and supplies running low. Yeah. So the que- we know that we can't make any money at the current price point and there's only 500 decks running it on EDH rec. So the question becomes is, are you going to get a shot? at unloading some you know two three four dollar copies at the ten dollar mark um i'm happy to just leave that one on the shelf and let it play out there's still stuff from conspiracy take the crown that's much more exciting for edh like expro- expropriate and expropriate foils um that i'm i'm willing to leave this one let let lie let someone else take a swipe at it Sure. Yeah, I would not advocate at all trying to chase this one for profit. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that would have to look like um, in order to make money there, but it's not a game I want to play. Likewise, with the next card, Bloodbraid Elves have been seeing little pockets of movement here and there for the last couple of months as people speculate that they might be unbanned um, for the modern Pro Tour next year to kind of spice things up. Um, I'm finding that hard to believe. The modern Pro Tour looks like it's in a really good place, and I'm pretty sure Aaron Forsyth. Um, already went public saying that they probably weren't going to make any changes until the six month, uh, six week period after that pro tour um, to see if, um, you know, what the field kind of like take the litmus test of the format at that point and see if anything needs to change. Um, everybody feels pretty confident that the format's in a good place right now. So betting on Bloodbraid Elf isn't really where I want to be either. Me neither. Um, and especially since we've been down this path so many times before that, uh, at this point, I have to imagine so many of the copies are in the hands of people that are just waiting for this to get unbanned. I feel like there's going to be this massive exodus of copies into the market if this does get unbanned, simply because so many people um, have been buying into it every time the ban list uh, list kind of comes around. Um, and I also do recall here reading something like that from Aaron at some point. Uh, so I think that, that you're probably not far off with that either. These factors combined just, you know, I want to stay away from Blood Raid Elf at this point. It was an interesting card to spec on like two years ago or something, but we are well past, well, well away from that at this point in time. The other thing is they, they don't seem shy about reprinting this card, despite the fact that it, it hasn't shown up. So you can take that one of two ways. You can think you can assume that the most recent reprinting was because they believe it will be unbanned shortly. Or you can take that as they just know that it's a it's a decent card for limited environments that 
they can afford to throw in there here and there because they don't have to worry about it anywhere else. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. So next card on our list is Bazaar of Baghdad from Arabian Nights. Uh, Non-foils. I like <laughs> started you. The, yeah. Oh, really? Foil, yeah. Foil, there's foils? That, that, that would the, be awesome. Yeah. I have, uh, I have a foil bazaar to sell you. Started the week at around 900, just under. Uh, now at around 1,200 for uh, you know 300, 300 and some odd dollar increase. Um, although that only works out to like 37%. Uh I, I mean, this is just part of that sort of slow sustained demand for all of these reserve list type cards and also um, is useful, I suppose. Uh, so we dred- don't see too much of the dredge, dredge staple and vintage. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, people are playing with it, of course. I don't know. I don't know if the demand profile is necessarily increasing, right? Like I, more people aren't trying to play with Bizarre than they were last week. No. But, over the last like year and a half, you know, Magic as a collectible vehicle has sort of accelerated movement on all these older cards. And given the fact that Bizarre is actually useful, it's certainly more likely to move than others. I mean, what I will say is that like I don't think demand for anything in Magic is is on a tremendous upswing, except perhaps some EDH foils that are that don't see very frequent reprint um, uh, because that format is you know healthy and growing. Um, I would guess it's probably got the highest uptake of any format in Magic. Um, but, uh, even if you go with the wizards numbers that, you know, they're the last several three, four years of magic have been low single digit growth, let's call it 4%, 6%, something like that. Um, and I think a large portion of that is probably ARPU, meaning average revenue per user, as opposed to revenue from new users. But even if say 25% of that growth is just like 1% of total revenue of magic, which is $350 million, that's still $35 million in revenue from new users per year or something, you know, that math is very rough, but something in that neighborhood. And if some small percentage of those players are interested in vintage or are collector types that hear about these cool, iconic old cards and decide to pick one up here or there, um, you know, it it doesn't take much to drain the well on this stuff because there just aren't that many copies lying around. And one of the things I like, uh, I think, is a strong signal with Bazaar's new price tag is that over on eBay, um, because, you know, these prices are sourced from TCG Player. Um, but over on eBay, it's not like there's a $800 copy sitting there near mint. Like the, the prices are pretty much in sync. So it looks like the market will probably support this plateau, you know, plus minus a hundred dollars or something, but I don't think you're going to see $800 bazaars again anytime soon. No, I mean, and you know, some of these prices are, I guess, retail prices we're referring to. So like, you're not going to see $800 bazaars on TCG player. Um, or Star City, you might be able to find those locally third party type of thing, like buying from a friend or a guy you know. So it's not that nobody's ever going to pay 800 for a bazaar, but like the retail price on this is moved. Um, and I highlight that just because I think, you know, you start you start to see the gulf widen on pricing between websites and like deals made at a GP, the higher up the price scale you go. Yeah. Um, you know, a $20... $30 snapcaster on TCG players, $30 on the floor of a GP. It's not really any different, but I can come home and list my bizarre Baghdad for $1,500 online and wait for a bite. But if I'm at a GP, I might be willing to take 1100 or a thousand cash for it right there in the moment. Yeah. The reality is that people feel bad about spending a lot of money on magic cards. They know they're buying cardboard for large sums of money and it takes some suspension of disbelief um, to, 
to proceed with that process. <laughs> and so people like to get a deal. Like the the reality is that a lot of the the power and like you know super iconic five hundred thousand dollar cards from that period of Magic's history tend to trade hands at discount. You know, strong discounts to retail, like you said. Like you know, a Snapcaster Mage that's four bucks off. Somebody will move that on Twitter, but. You know, when I put my Lotus up last week just for funsies to see if anybody would buy it for Bitcoin, um, I didn't get any Bitcoin offers, but I did get some cash offers that, you know, I was looking for something in the 4,200 US range and people were more interested in the like 36, 3,800 US range, um, which wouldn't leave much meat on the bone versus the, you know, the approximate trade up value that I got that I put into it like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. What's next for us? Crop rotation foils see movement yet again. This is a, uh, a card that, uh, whose foil tends to appreciate ever so often. I think we've already seen one big jump this year. This time it's from a hundred to 180 for a solid 80% gain. I don't know how easy it is to find a buyer for foil crop fo- crop rotations at that price. Um, it's basically lands players and legacy that are after that card, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, uh, I, I do remember having one in the Super Collection. It was a very nice looking foil, as are all of the foils from Urza's Legacy and Destiny. Um, so uh, not tremendously surprised to see the price pressure, but again, not tremendously liquid card. James, can I tell you a very sad story? Yeah. I think it was maybe three years ago that I sold more than one crop rotation, and I, foil crop rotation, and I <laughs> think I might have gotten $15 a piece for them. Wow. Yeah, I mean that was that was the going rate back then, and and I think it's not it's a very um, it's not a card that you look at and go wow. It's not like a Misha's workshop where you're like triple the mana. No, it's <laughs> sack a land to go get a land, right? So you need to be go get going to get a fairly broken land to make that worthwhile. And typically, you're going to get some a utility land in the lands deck, or you're going to get dark depths and finish people off with merit lage tokens. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, people probably got, uh, could still get ripped off on if they weren't paying attention to the game. Some dude who drags some binders out of the basement and goes to trade it as local LGS is going to get, you know, traded for a thought seize out of iconic masters or something and walk away happy and not realize what he lost. Yeah, it is certainly not splashy in the sense that it's going to catch people's attention. And even back then, it was like you recognized that it was a really good EDH card. But beyond that, you didn't really think much of it because, like, you know, it was EDH. People played it, but cards weren't worth that much money for for dumb shit like that. But, yeah. oh, well. All right. Next on the list. Next on the list is Urza's Mine from Ninth Edition. We're looking at the foils. Um, supposedly jumped from 30 to 70. These pop up every now and then. I tend not to pay too much attention. The prices kind of jump all over the place. The Urza's Lands have uh, one foil printing. It's, or, I'm sorry, two foil printings, eighth and ninth. Um, and they're always bouncing around. I think, you know, like one or two get restocked. Somebody buys them again. Yeah. So <laughs> right now on Urza's Mine, ninth edition, the market price is 45, uh, which means that's about the price of the last one sold. And the only near mint copy is a hundred. Um, so just very low supply. I think most of the movement on these probably occurs at GPs. Like I would guess that's where most of these cards are bought and sold. Um, in any case, these all scare the hell out of me because wizards is just looking for some place to put them. Uh, at this point, 
Masters 25 seems like a reasonable place. I mean, I would have guessed Iconic Masters. Masters 25 scares the heck out of me uh, on those. Um, and at this point, they're just so ridiculously inflated that you, even if it's not in Masters 25, you still can't buy these. I just never want to own this card. Yeah, I think you want to be selling those. I, I don't know if they can, if Ursus Lands are a good fit for a, a set that has to have a draft component, but the, I mean, because if you only have one piece, they're totally stupid. Um, if you get all of them, your deck is broken. Um, I will point out here that Masters 25 is supposed to be cards that have like been part of Magic's professional scene for 25 years, right? Yes. Uh, it's cards from Magic's storied history or something, right? So, yeah. I mean, from that perspective, I can see it. Like, And, and it's iconic to me, and we didn't get iconic cards and iconic Masters per se. So I could, you know... If it was me making the decision, I would at least consider it. Um, but I'm just not convinced it, it balances in the in the limited format, and that might be a, a strong factor there. But if they don't put it there, I don't know where else they put it because it's not going to show up in like FTV Broken Lands um, or whatever. We've already had Realms, and and it's 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 a it's a weird one because you have to print all three. It's not you can't just reprint Eldrazi Temple uh, as a one off. Um, that's eh, tricky. I, I agree that I, I agree that the eighth and ninth. Well, the eighth and ninth. Um, th- those are both sets whose foils are you know have collector demand. But I, I agree there's some strong downward pressure that would be applied against those foils um, if a new foil printing showed up. Well, where I was going with this was uh, if Masters twenty five is supposed to be cards with a strong presence in Magic's tournament history. Um, that certainly includes Eldrazi at this point. And the nice thing about these is that they are okay in a draft format because they're at worst a land that taps for mana and makes wastes, right? Like makes colorless mana. So like if you have Eldrazi in the set, they're fine because uh, it's unlikely you'll ever get all three, but you can draft them alongside the Eldrazi strategy and occasionally get to live the dream of picking all three of them up. I'd be surprised if we saw like battle for Zendikar cards in there. And they're the only ones that really care about waste, right? Well, maybe, I mean, they could also do like an artifact sub theme given that artifacts are busted. I don't know. I'm just thinking that like, that's where you could possibly see overlap in, in functionality, but neither of us like them. <laughs> uh, yeah. I like selling at this price regardless. I, I, the, the risk isn't worth it. The, um, because there's, there's not really that much further to get up the ladder. Um, so last card on our list, biggest mover of the week, Arena of the Ancients from Legends. This is just yet another card from that set being targeted, supposedly going from $8 to $48. That's a $40 gain, almost 500%, uh, or exactly 500%. Um, you're going to have a lot of trouble, um, I think, unloading any significant quantity of those, um, as with many of those the cards from that era that have been targeted this year. But if you had one sitting around, um, all the power to you, you might be able to do a sweet buy list deal at some point if the uh, inventory stays scarce on all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I picked up one of these recently for like 250 just to have it because it's a cool card. Um, but beyond that, I never want to look at this card again. Just who cares? Yep. All right. So moving right along to our picks of the week cards to watch and the stuff that we think is going to move and shake. Um, in the future, um, I'll kick us off with uh, a pretty strong uh, uh, presence in multiple formats. Uh, I'm talking about walking ballista foils. Um, this rare from Ether Revolt, um, between price pressure from standard EDH and modern, um, is already sitting at twenty dollars. 
Um, the sell target I would think would be in the $35 to $40 range for about a 75% gain sometime in the next year or so. Um, it's a four of an Eldrazi Tron, shows up in other Tron builds. Um, it's in the uh, Creatures Toolbox style decks with the Vizier of Remedies um, as their kill condition. Uh, foils are already in very low supply, and it's also in 3800EDH.rec uh, decks. All of that adds up um, to a foil that I think is going to be in uh, strong demand. Uh, we're not going to see any further supply for a few years, and I have every confidence that these are going to get a chance to appreciate yeah, we've talked about foil walking blisses a couple times on the cast, I believe. Uh, I mean, you, you've you brought them up more than the rest of us, I believe, but uh, still a frequent topic uh, for myself and, and Cliff and even anyone else that happens to stop by and talk about it. Um, well, I, I, I went back and checked. The, the, the first one I could find where we mentioned it was you called the non-foils at $1.50, um, which was a solid pick uh, at the time. Um, and we certainly touched on the foils at that point, but I, I, and I assumed we must have like touched on it in the last 20 episodes or so, but I went back and checked before we started recording um, and we didn't, we haven't. Um, and I think, you know, obviously these were pretty exciting in the 10 to $15 range, but even at 20, I think it's going to be dead solid given where inventory levels are at right now. I'm going to go with, we've talked about it, but didn't like make it an official pick of the week and just kind of stumbled into it in the course of conversation. Uh, a, because that means I get to pat ourselves on the back for it, even though we can't find proof of it. Um, uh, and <laughs> we, that happens all the time, right? Like we, you and I will have a discussion, get slightly off topic, yeah. talk about cards. And then if I want to go back and find them someplace, I can't, but it doesn't mean we didn't talk about it. it just means it's not written down. Well, there's also like a ton of cards that you and I target that don't make it into our list every week just because of timing issues or limitations on, you know, how much we're going to discuss on any given week. Yeah, But I mean, I think back in April, I was buying like Russian foil walking ballistas um, for very attractive pricing that I have a feeling are going to be a pretty big deal down the road. Yeah. Um, okay, so walking ballista, good card, good valuable foil card, and a lot of people play it. There you go. Oh, I like I, I, this next pick of yours, pretty spicy. Give me, <laughs> give me the look. Give me the lowdown because I already sold one of these this year. Uh, so this is uh, a couple years ago. I picked up a Judge Foil Gaia's Cradle for like three uh, hundred ish and change or so, right around that ballpark. Um, and it felt kind of pricey, but I pulled the trigger and I was happy about it. Then sometime this year, it's jump forward a while, a couple years. Sometime this year, I picked one or two of them up in Europe and then sold them here stateside for like somewhere around 600 bucks, like give or take $75. I don't remember exactly how much. Um, so, you know, there's already been a pretty big movement. And then today, uh, somebody we know um, told me he sold uh, a copy on TCG player for $950. So that just goes to show that this card has basically tripled in price over the last couple of years. And we've seen it rise from, probably a four or five hundred dollars on january 1st 2017 to 900 and some odd dollars at the end of this year which is a pretty big hike in price um and you know i kept a close eye on it in some of the foreign markets and it's definitely moved over there too it's not a thousand dollars but it certainly moved so we've really seen some strength behind this card now you've talked about it before uh i've also discussed it um, or, you know, when you talked about it, I was like, I think that's a good idea. Uh, so I'm just kind of using it, you know, given the news that we're, I've now seen proof of a copy selling for that much. I'm, I'm kind of much more on this 
boat than I was. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just like, it's like a power nine that you can actually use. Yep. Uh, right. Like it, it essentially, you could almost say that it is at power nine level or like one tier below. This card is so good, but you get to play with it in EDH, which is so good. And you're never going to see them print anything that comes close to it. Right. Uh, I mean, they printed Groin Rights of Atomic, which is like their quote unquote fixed Gaius Cradle, or at least a, a play on that mechanic. And that's not a bad card, but it's nowhere near this. It's not a land. You can't crop rotation for it. So it's just so good. You can never reprint it. You can never get even close to uh, a card of this strength. It's, you know, it's a, it's a reserveless foil. I mean, there's just an infinite number of checkboxes and columns for Gaius Cradle. So really, the question is what's the ceiling? Uh, and theoretically it doesn't have one. You know, I would say that it's ceiling is black Lotus, uh, you know, whatever black Lotus costs Gaius cradle judge copies should cost less. Um, but there's a lot of room there. Um, so, you know, I'm not telling you to go out and buy them at $950, but if your store has these for like 600, 700, even 800, uh, you know, that's a worthwhile consideration, especially if you're not sure where else to park your funds at the moment. Um, you know, we could see guys cradle pull up towards 13, 1500, maybe even two grand, um, over the next year or two. Um, cause there's really nothing, nothing holding this back. So I'm, I'm looking to see if I can score some reasonably priced copies. Yeah. There's a few things there. The, it was the card that I kept that I got in the super collection in the summer of 2015 when I sold that collection in, in and around Christmas of that year, this was the trophy I took home um, on top of the pile of money. And I held it for a while and then I sold it. It looks like in April for five forty five eighty eight, up from about two eighty was the value when I first got it. And I, I recorded that as a very solid profit since I basically got it for zero opportunity cost was, you know, nothing because the collection had already paid for itself plus. Um, so that was like a plus like 460 or something after all was said and done. But then when you, when we were hunting in Europe last winter, um, I picked up a copy as well. And that copy was the most flawless version I've ever seen. Um, and I put, put it up, I think you know, on eBay in August and sold it in the high 600s, like 670, 680, something like that. And that was already another almost $120, $150 above the last copy I sold a few months before. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. Like nothing to complain about there because I'm pretty sure we picked up those copies in Europe for significantly less than that, right? Like it was, I want to say three to 400 or something like that. Yeah, that's about what I was paying. So, I mean, that's a fantastic profit within a year and I just can never turn that down. But as I'm thinking through your, you know, your logic here, I, I, I don't disagree with any of it. I mean, I, I don't know if it can get to 2000, but I certainly believe in it at 1200 to 1500, just on scarcity alone. And the fact that, like you said, it's a ma major EDH foil. It is a collector foil. It's a beautiful foil. I mean, the, the version I, I sold in August, that guy got like a, like a gradable, a gradable version. It's nice. And these weren't even pack foils. These are judge foils. So there really just aren't that many around some total. And once they get into people's EDH decks, dude, they just never leave. Like those, <laughs> those guys aren't, aren't, there's not a lot of churn in really special EDH cards once people finally, um, you know, lay their paws on them. 
the other thing is that it's a beautiful uh, option for, you know, if you're doing the whole thing where you're trading up out of bad specs or good specs um, vis-a-vis a, a buy list and you're getting a 20 or 30% trade-in bonus, you know, you're sending in $750 buy list. If you can trade that into a $1,000, you know, Judge Foil Guy's Cradle, you're consolidating a lot of value and you've got something you can play with um, in the meantime. It's, it's a solid option. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't have much to add to that. It, it, it's a long shot and it's certainly one of the bigger cards we've talked about investing in, but I don't think you're unlikely to be unhappy if you uh, if you pick any of these up. Might not necessarily give you the fastest returns out of anything we'll talk about, but it is definitely would be hard to lose much. Well, and, um, like, and the other thing you said that I agree with is final point. Um, growing rates of Itlamok, um, is their swipe at this card? So they tend to do that. You know, they've tried to do this to most of the stuff. You know, we've got various moxes, mox opal, chrome mox, et cetera, that have mimicked the moxes. We've got lotus bloom and other, ver- and and uh, lotus petal and other things that have mimicked lotus. We've got various versions of time twister and and time, uh, time walk and so forth. So, one, but they don't do it all the time. So like once they take a swipe at it, they'll probably leave it alone for a while. There, there's only so many, you don't really want to be all that, correct <laughs> about setting up uh, a new guy's cradle you you want it to be slightly bad because the danger case in it being too good is crazy for modern right um, right uh, no nobody needs a, a a land that makes even more mana than the tron lands um potentially so yeah it, it's a super strong card collector demand edh demand hard to go wrong um Likewise for modern, uh, my next pick uh, is already a pretty pricey foil. I'm talking about Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger foils from Battle for Zendikar. Put a confidence level of the, on this of about seven to be a mid to long term, like six to eighteen month hold. Um, you're picking up this mythic foil at forty bucks, which is not cheap. Um, and if you don't believe in the foils, you could take a look at the non foils closer to twelve um, and uh, get in. Uh, uh, taking into account the you know high foil premium that you're paying for this card but the reality is there just aren't that many copies of of the foil around um i took a look online it's very low inventory and not the kind of thing that i expect to see reprinted um anytime soon if if they put uh bfz block stuff in 25 then it could easily show up there if they don't then i don't think you see it again until something like a modern masters 2019 um, although the master's pace is now, you know, up for debate how many times they're going to go to the well. So we'll see how that plays out, but I suspect you're going to get a chance to get out on $40 copies of this card at 70 or so, something like that. And keep in mind that not only is it a modern Tron staple and shows up in a whole bunch of different Tron decks, it's also an 8,700 EDH decks already. Um, so, I mean, the Eldrazi have made people money in the past, the ones from the original Zendikar block, and it will not surprise me at all to see some of the more popular ones, um, including the other, you know, mid-range staples like Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher make people money over the course of the next year or two. Yeah, I mean, Ulamog is a ridiculous card, and he's almost, he's he's arguably the best um Eldrazi in EDH2 that you can legally cast just because exiling two permanents is so good. And after that, who cares uh, what you do? It's 10 mana exile two permanents. And, you know, you, if you happen to get to untap with them, cool beans. Um, I do 
I am concerned about reprint uh, because you're right. If they're if it's not in Masters twenty five, you've got some time, but it will come right. Like it's absolutely going to come. It's just a matter of of when. But you know, you could still see the price move up to eighty dollars before that happens. Um, so I don't I don't dislike this. I think. I guess really the question is, is how long do you think they can wait to reprint it? But if you give them two or three years, then you're, you know, you're, there's probably still plenty of time in there for you to make your profit and get out of the way. Yeah. I mean, if, if they end up throwing it into say a big mana focused uh, EDH deck or something, then again, no foils. Um, if it shows up in a master set, those foils are definitely going to exert drag because it's just too soon. Um, but I, I'm still rolling with the assumption that most cards are going to get a three to four year window. Um, we're, we're not really seeing any um, amount of uh, single printing cards getting reprinted right away again in a completely different set. I mean, you sometimes see them like a, a key standard rare will show up in a uh, event deck or whatever. But once it's rotated out, no, I mean, that goes to the back burner and stays there for a while. Yeah, I'd have to go back and do some number crunching to figure out what the the incidence rate of that type of thing is. Um, I don't know. What was the most recent card printed in uh, Iconic Masters? Do you know off the top of your head? Or anything remotely recent? You know, something that was an Iconic Masters that had been printed recently? Well, printed for the first time recently. Well, I mean, Mana Drain is is the is the big printing that we haven't seen in forever and ever no 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 other direction like a a relatively new card that then also showed up in iconic masters like something from ixalan being an iconic masters type of thing or battle for zendikar oh nothing i can think of yeah i don't know what the what the most recent card was i'd have yeah we'd have to go back and take a look and see like how regularly they're they're bringing cards of that nature um into these products I mean, I cryptic remember. cryptic command was printed in. Uh, was it in Modern Masters twenty seventeen? Yeah, but even y- y- yes, it was. But even that, I wouldn't I wouldn't count just because the first printing was Shadowmore. So, yeah. I, and I'm and I'm just thinking like, okay, this card, the first printing of this card was with, was within how many years? The the only cards I really expect to see that happen with are, like I said, uh, standard staples. You know, something like a collected company can show up in a supplemental product during the time it's in standard um, or something like a fatal push. Right. That's going to show up as a promo or something. Um, but again, while while they are in in standard, I, I think that once they use they, they use those hype engines to drive interest in existing sets, that they're trying to get off shelves. Um, it's very rare that you see um, cards that have just rotated get any kind of focus or spotlight. Because you want to give people time to miss those cards. It's it's not good marketing to, you know, have a card annoy people for two years in standard and then just print it again three months later and throw it back in their face. Um, because at that point, it's not likely to be an exciting open because the people have no immediate use for it outside of their specific decks in specific formats that are not the core formats. They're, um, and so... Yeah, I, I just don't see it happening. I think this is a. I think the foils especially are going to be pretty safe, um, and the non-foils at twelve are are perhaps even more attractive, given that the, they're not carrying that significant premium. I mean, I lo- I would love this foil at twenty. At forty, I think it's solid. Yeah, I was uh, I was not disagreeing with you. I was just thinking like how you know. <clears throat> 
it's very likely we could go back and look at some of these sets and notice like, okay, it turns out that the most recent card that's showing up in these reprint sets is four years old, which means you really do have time on this. Yeah. I I mean, there's nothing in Iconic Masters that jumps out at me. They, Iconic Masters is carrying a bunch of cons block stuff. So you can do the math based on that, right? Like that's um, three years back. Uh. Oh, that sounds about right because Battle for Zenikar was two. Yeah. So I right Kaladesh last year, um, Battle for Zenikar the year before that. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> the exciting on-air so, discussion of what year did that set come out? <laughs> well, we're not. It, it's not three years. Let's put it that way. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to get it two year. Like, basically six months after it rotated out. Right, which is right. what we're talking. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's change uh, over to my last card for the week. Um, something a little a little less exciting. Uh, I'm looking at World at War from Rise of Eldrazi. Uh, I was browsing some of the popular commanders uh, on EDH track this week, and Narset was showing up, and I, I've seen her before, but I actually stopped and looked at her this week because I knew that that deck would have some some weird cards in there. Um, and this is in there, uh, world of war. It's the rebound, take an extra turn or extra combat phase card. Um, and it's in like 3,400 EDH decks, which is actually pretty respectable, uh, especially for a card that I would say has relatively narrow, um, utility in the sense that, uh, most decks aren't going to be able to do enough with it, but still it seems pretty popular. Um, you can get foils of this right now for like seven bucks. There's only the one printing from Rise of Eldrazi. Uh, and supply is pretty low, like under 10 copies, I think right now on TCG player. So, yep. you know, a reasonable number of decks. Uh, <clears throat> it's more demand than you would expect. And there's only the one printing. So I mean, this isn't set up for a nice, easy double up. You know, these types of effects have done well in the past. If it wasn't World of War, it's others. And Rise of Eldrazi is definitely in that time frame where it's old enough that even the non-banner cards like the Eldrazi from Rise uh, have had time to sort of drain their inventory and start getting, you know, more popular. Sort of those like third tier and fourth tier cards. Uh, so, you know. Nothing too terribly exciting, but uh, I think you're probably good for a double up on this. And the reprint risk is on, you know, you could see this show up in a lot of places, but a lot of places don't have foils. So you could see this in plane chase anthologies or more new plane chase sets or, you know, commander or things of that nature. So like all those types of all these types of cards, I'm much more interested in foils and then non foils because it's much harder to print foil copies. If you're going to target a, a niche foil. You really mm-hmm. want it to be something that they're, they're going to have trouble placing somewhere. And I actually think it's harder to place than you just alluded to. Um, it just, it doesn't fit into easily fit into like the themes that you would normally be running with. This is the kind of obscure card that goes years without a reprinting mm-hmm. because there's just, they don't have a, there's no demand. Like there's no, there's no back burner thing. There's just a, like this one specific usage in a specific EDH deck. And that's enough to drive the foils. You probably want to stay away from the non-foils in that case. But like you said, if there's only 10 foils left and there's seven bucks each, you can turn those into 15s just by holding for a while. The key there is that they're not super liquid. So like you're probably only going to, if it plat, if it like spikes to 15 and we talk about it, 
and some EDH players go, oh, I meant to get that at some point, and they start buying it, they're only buying, you might sell a copy every two months and be unspooling them for a while. And um, that kind of niche stuff doesn't tr- usually attract a super uh, good buy list um, price either. So, you know, just so you know, you'll, you may be sitting on them a while, but I think it's a solid pick. Yeah, that's definitely the type of thing I think about when I look at these types of cards is I'm like, this is one of those cards that they could end up reprinting every other year until we've got for like inexplicable reasons and we've got a ton of them. Or it's one of those cards that they will just keep waiting and waiting and waiting to pull the trigger on and everyone will get really annoyed at how expensive it is uh, because it shouldn't be that much and they just refuse to reprint it. Either way, um, it's interesting, I think. And I do love me some niche foils. Yeah. So, I mean, especially coming from Europe, they've been big, big deal for us all year. The um, So one of the things that I th- find really interesting in the context of all the discussion going on around Iconic Masters and how it seems to be, you know, glutted um, in the supply chain uh, is that the Modern Masters 2017 staples um, are not in super high supply, especially not the foils. Um, and if we're going to talk about a uh, high demand card in foil that is already um, displaying a pretty high price tag, but might have room to grow. The one I think we should draw attention to here is Snapcaster Mage Foil, so Modern Masters 2017. There are, despite it having the printing in Innistrad and then a RPTQ, no, Pro Tour promo, um, and being printed in Modern Masters 2017 with the new art. Foil, all of those foils are in relatively low supply um, with like 10 or 15 copies a piece on TCG. You can get any of those three for about $100, maybe a little less, plus minus 10 or something. Um, but for instance, the 2017 copies, there's only three copies left um, on TCG, uh, basically 100 100 and then a $200 copy. So can those $100 copies get flipped out at 140 or 150 before they reprint it again? My gut says, yeah, probably. I, I don't think we're going to see Snap again one year after in Magic 25. Um, it's not impossible because we saw Cryptic. Um, but if Snapcaster Mage isn't in 25, uh, then the foils are you know, very likely to appreciate before we see a reprint. For sure. And I mean, this is a card that you know is definitely liquid. Uh, you know, possibly one of the most liquid cards in modern border magic uh, because so many people want copies and it's the type of card people will pick up and own and, and hang on to just because they know they might want it as opposed to needing it right now. Uh, so yeah, this is another one of those, like probably, you know, might be tricky to double up, but that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of room for uh, meaningful profit. Uh, if you're able to pick them up for, for market price. Yeah. And I mean, what's the EDH demand like for Snapcaster? My guess is it's not terrible, right? Uh, it's probably fine. No, oh, better than fine. 10,000 plus decks. Ugh. Um, I mean, it's still, it still flashes back instance and sorceries and almost no matter what deck you're running in, in EDH, you, you've got a, a, an interest in getting that, that value. Um, not to mention if you're flickering them in and out and doing all sorts of bizarre things, then you, you can start to get real, real value going. Um, so, I mean, between the, the fact that it's a 10K plus EDH card and all the modern demand, I mean, it's a top five card in modern right now, and that's not always going to be the case, the way the meta shakes out, but um, blue is consistently pretty good in the format. Um, you're seeing uh, Snapcaster show up in a bunch of different deck types, um, Jeskai Control decks, you're seeing Grixis Death Shadow, um, 
you know, who knows what teamer build might be down around the bend. Um, bottom line, these, these foils are not plentiful. They are in high demand and they could easily get back up to, you know, I think foils were sitting in the 200 to 250 range from Innistrad at one point when we hadn't seen a reprint for a while and it got into that three or four year window. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see these get at least 150, 160. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. 250 sounds about right. Well, Liliana was like 300, I think. So Snapcaster was probably like just under two, maybe might have been his peak. He was up there, though. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, so we can move right along here to our metagame we can review. We didn't have any uh, major constructed tournaments uh, that we needed to go through this week. There's just a few things that I, I noticed at the SEG Modern Classic Baltimore that I wanted to point out. Um, the first was at the Creatures Toolbox deck that took that tournament. Um, this is the one built around the Vizier Remedies uh, and aforementioned uh, presence of Walking Ballista. was running a copy of Ronus the Indomitable, which I thought was cool. Um, that's a card I expect to see sneak into decks here and there for quite some time, although probably never as a four of. Uh, the Eldrazi Tron build that finished second was running the full complement of Walking Ballistas, um, which certainly contributed to that pick this week. And then the only other thing that jumped out at me was in the Affinity build that finished fifth, there was a Hope of Giraper, <laughs> which is a card I bet many people have forgotten even exists. Uh, that guy uh, clearly went searching. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to love to hear his commentary on on how that moved into the deck because when I first saw that card, I thought it was constructed playable, but it, that's the first I've seen anybody actually successfully uh, top eight anywhere with it. Well, I was missing a signal pass uh, five minutes before the tournament started, and I had to put something in the slot. <laughs> um, yeah, nothing too out of the ordinary here, uh, but you know, it is nice to see the the diversity in builds. Um, some guys of St. Traft, which I know I've I've mentioned before is having showed up in the top eight. So it looks like those those Jeskai Geist decks are uh, are doing pretty well. It's really funny what's old is new again there. There's just a pile of Jeskai cards from the start of the format, and then I guess Spell Queller is a big difference yeah. there. Um Yeah. I mean, and the format looking healthy, right? I mean, the, the full top eight was Creatures Toolbox, Eldrazitron, Grixis Death Shadow, Urzatron, Affinity, Burn, Jeskai Binrage, and Balakit. So you know, a, a full complement of established uh, archetypes, um, but nothing over dominant. Um, I think, you know, this is the format's in a good place. I, I say, don't mess with it; just let it go. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because it's really in a good place uh, to play Magic, but for you and I, I feel like it has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Uh, and what I mean by that is the format has really spread out in the same way that you see. Um, legacy aficionados uh, quote um, because you know you can show up with just about any deck uh, or one of 20 or 30 decks and have a chance of winning any weekend um, and everything's sort of become stable at least stable enough that like chances are your deck is your deck that's good this week is still mostly going to be good next week uh, you know you don't have to make huge changes to it over and over again um, so it's it's almost it's kind of doing its legacy impression where there's a lot of avali- a lot of playable decks, um, which means it's hard for any one card to sort of take over and go up in price. You don't have a reserve list, so you don't have that 
working on the format in the same way that you do in legacy. It's just seems like basically it's really good for players and sort of crummy for us because there's a lot of reasons why the cards aren't that expensive and can't get that much more expensive. Um, But it's good for people who actually want to play, which I guess is the point. Well, I mean, there's there's also the reprint pressure that that's coming from the more frequent release of master sets, and it's funny because guys, we we think that uh, I I believe that the the reprints are um, not like a red flag, but I think they're a yellow flag on the format because I just don't think that they're managing their resources well. Um, I also think that all of the vendors who have been quoted saying that they don't care about reprints because they're just going to get their margin don't really understand their own businesses. Um, uh, I'm not real shy about saying that because I've gone over the math several times. Um, it, if your whole business model is that you buy low, sell high, which is essentially what buy lists are, right? They, you know, they're, they're call it a 40% margin or whatever. They're going to buy a hundred dollar card for $60 and sell it for a hundred. Um, if those cards on average are a hundred and then at some point because of reprints, they move down to 50 then your percentage is the same, but your raw dollar value isn't pre- compared against percentages. It's compared against your overhead, which is fixed numbers. So your hourly rate that you've got to pay staff, still that fixed $10 an hour or whatever that you're comparing to now on a on a $50 card that you're getting 40% on, um, you're making in 15 instead of 30. And so it only pays for uh, an hour a ha- and a half of a staff member's time instead of, three, uh, instead of two hours, right? So... When you start doing the math the right way, if you're a vendor, you should be concerned about reprints. Now, at the current level, nah, not such a big deal. Uh, if they keep pushing that further down the road and they don't find ways to refresh their approach so that they're not going back to the well on the same cards over and over again, then I think there really are going to be problems. Um, I think one of the other things that plays into the, you know the how MTG Finance and Modern interact as a format is that we're just at a state of maturity, right? Like the people that play, A, there's not a lot of player growth, so there's not a lot of fresh bodies coming into Modern. Um, and B, the people that do play Modern all kind of have their decks. And there is some like shakeup here and there throughout the year, but even if you're switching decks, a lot of your staples carry over. Like, okay, Gris's Death Shadow is a brand new thing, but most of the cards in that deck were things that a Modern player would already have in their toolbox. Um, other than Death Shadow. So it wasn't that tough to like switch over to to a new deck there. Very rarely do you get a brand new deck with a whole bunch of brand new cards. And I think that's really where the opportunities lie, right? Like we're looking for the spell quellers of the world, the walk, foil walking ballistas. We're looking for, you know, somebody to break um, uh, growing rights of Itlamok or um, one of these other cards that has potential in the format that nobody's fully exploited yet. And, you know, certainly cards like Vizier Remedy Foils, I made good money on this year. Um, You know, I fully expect that Russian Foil Fatal Push is going to be a thing. Um, And once those dry up. And so, you know, there's money to be made, but it's it's a combination of, you know, pre-identifying staples and being on top of emergent deck types. So like, for instance, Five Color Humans uh, made me money because I bothered to do the research to establish that the deck was likely to be real and we were paying attention to it for the first couple of weeks as it rolled out and it racked up so many victories so quickly that it it didn't seem like a stretch to go after some of the cards that were going to be good in tr- other tribal circumstances anyway and to later then pick something like a cavern of souls as one of the cards um, that is likely to rebound um after its recent reprinting um you know also seems to be a pretty safe bet because it's got you know multiple angles of approach so yeah, it's getting tougher. It's you know it's it's hard on these mean streets, 
but uh, you know, there's there's definitely still money out there. Oh sure, and I, I mean, I wasn't implying that like you can't make any money on it at all, but it's it's getting to where legacy was a couple of years ago, where you're absolutely right is you had to really pay attention. Uh, you didn't see spikes as, as often. You had to really be on your game when you were trying to figure out if something was good. Um, because if you were wrong, it wasn't going to move anything. And even still, even if you got a new card that came in, like a growing rights fizzlemaker or whatever, that suddenly got a whole new archetype up off the ground or what have you, or, or dramatically changed one, there still might, it still might not have put pressure on any of the cards you actually needed to increase in price. Like, oh, good, the cards that it really relies on are commons instead of, um, you know, the the valuable mythics that I need it to or the old card, right? Like, you know, I only need one card that, of the rare ones. It's all the simple stuff that uh, that the deck relies on. So it doesn't even work for you necessarily. Um, so, and, and, you know, the other part of this is that the reprints that I'm, I'm almost inclined to say they've used too many. I mean, I'm sure people who can now afford to play the format are pleased with where it's gone, but I do kind of wonder if maybe they haven't spread themselves too thin. Um, or I guess perhaps that's their, their goal is they're like, okay, we're going to give modern players several years of reprints, uh, cut the cost of the format to a third of what it used to be. Uh, and then when it finally starts to bottom out a little bit, that's when we kind of pivot to this other option, whatever that may be. Um, whether it's focusing more on the casual side of magic or God help me introducing a new format, those types of things could be sort of their exit strategy once they've ringed a modern for all's worth. But definitely profits, but a lot harder to find there, I think, than it was, say, three years ago. Although, you know, that's... No surprise to anybody back then you could, I would say shooting fish in a barrel, but like also the barrel counts and the water also counts if you hit it. So like just pull the trigger and you couldn't miss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So let's move on to our topic of the week segment four. And we got a little grab bag going on this week. Let's uh, kick things off by talking about the glut of IMA product. Iconic Masters is out. Some people are pretty into the set. Others aren't so sure. Um, we've questioned in the past the wisdom of having multiple products lined up for Christmas that might pr produce some kind of wallet cross-wallet cannibalization. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the weirdest thing going on is that there's so much product in the market that there's been a real race to the bottom. And as recently as the last Master Set, which was Modern Masters 2017 last spring, that was not the case. Um, the general consensus was that Modern Masters 2013, the original Modern Masters, was underprinted, that Modern Masters 2015 was not only uh, probably printed a bit more than it should have been, it was also of dubious uh, card quality. There was a lot of cards that came out of the packs with the damage, damage to the edges, and there was also known scratching on the foils. Um, and then with Modern Masters 2017, it looked like it had landed back in a sweet spot um, which is likely to lead to appreciation of many of the key staples. Um, so now with Iconic Masters, this is still a $240 MSRP product or $10 a pack roughly for a 24-pack box. Um, but for reasons that have to be related to overall availability of supply, the boxes have been selling as low as $135 um, in various online venues. It was almost universally when I put together the article on Black Friday sales last week included in almost everybody's Black Friday sale as a $150 or $160 item. 
um, even on the bigger websites uh, that would normally not be expected to provide steep discounts. So at 160, that's $80 off a 240. That's 33% discount off MSRP for a brand new set. I mean, that is unprecedented with master sets. This is really odd. We are hearing of a ton of merchandise available for this. Um, and, it, it, you know, we see the saw the draft pop packs in the uh, the big box stores. You could pick up um, three IMA packs for, what is it, $15 or no, $30, uh, which is already yeah. a weird sim- signal for supply. And then a lot of vendors talking about having so many left and deep discounts on a product that you would generally assume is. I mean, I remember the first Modern Masters, you couldn't find boxes at MSRP. And now a month after release, they're giving us IMA boxes at like, what is that, 20 or 30% off or something like that? Yeah, I mean, my, my vendor contacts in the US typically, I think sold me my Modern Masters 2017 boxes at 175 or 180 I believe. And that was like about $10, $15, $20 cheaper than the cheapest on eBay at the time. And a very solid price and relatively easy to make money on those boxes, um, or at least come out relatively clean. Um, but Iconic Masters at 150, 160, some even going 135, 140. I mean, that is really low and starts to beggar the question whether you know the Masters sub-brand can really support um, this frequency of reprint, especially if the themes are not uh, crystallized around demand from an existing um, you know, tier one or tier two format. I mean, I, I consider modern a tier two format. I don't consider a core. Um, and, but it, at least when you bought modern masters 2017, you knew what you were getting a pile of not recently reprinted modern staples that had been appreciating in value and that you might need for your decks in the near future. Um, and you got a discount. I ran a couple of different articles at the time demonstrating that, you know, despite people saying that modern stuff is still expen- too expensive, there was a pretty consistent like 30 to 50% drop across a lot of the, the key cards in that set over the first, as we were heading into peak supply. And everybody got their opportunity to get in on a deal. Um, but with Iconic Masters, given like that people were expecting the theming of the set to lean in a certain direction, which it didn't really deliver on, and the... Um, you know, the purpose of purchase is not super compelling because it's not, it's kind of a shotgun effect of cards. You know, it's great to get a mana drain reprint, but unless you're, you know, one of the 1% of magic players that plays formats where that's relevant, who really cares? Yeah, I, man, I forgot just how weird Iconic Masters was. Everyone was so excited about it. And then like, these are the cards that are iconic. Like, it's just such a, Odd series of cards they put in there, right? Modern relevant staples and iconic masters include Horizon Canopy, Ethervile, Flusterstorm, Cryptic Command, Ancestral Vision, Thoughtseize, and Grove of the Burn Willows. That's a pretty solid reprint list. All cards with relatively strong demand profiles. Thoughtseize caught some people off guard because they used the original art, which was kind of a new precedent. And then there's a whole bunch of other um, edh stuff, but... A lot of the stuff in here is is things that can't really uh, hold up a, a, a solid price tag once they see a reprint. So like Glimpse the Unthinkable, super happy to have gotten out on those closer to $40 um, earlier in the year when we were talking about how it was likely to see a reprint. Um, and here we go. It's now a $9 card, right? So um, did anybody really need to see get extra copies of the Kamigawa Dragons, even if they have bitchin' new art? Like, 
it, it it's tough. There's there's stuff in this set that that people need, but a lot of it's been seen relatively recently and hasn't really had a chance to mature. Nothing in that like one to you know eighteen month year window, other than uh, maybe cryptic command. And as far as I can tell, that's pretty much it. Um, and there's a bunch of like cool like cross format cards. Like I, you know, I'm happy to have a full play set of Lotus Cobras at like four dollars each. Mishra's baubles being available for five is good for everybody. Um, the Oblivion Stone foils look really nice, and there might be something worth targeting down the road. I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. $140 boxes isn't going to give people very much confidence heading into the spring, and I think M25 really needs to be a home run. Yeah, I, I will say that their the product run lately, you know, it felt like it was good for a while, but starting to feel like they've missed the mark a couple times here. Uh, and like it would be really good for the brand if they could put out something that players are really eager for. Maybe they're trying to get that with Unstable, perhaps. Um, you know, I, and it's funny because I remember, and as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking back and I recall when we knew about iconic masters, like when it was announced, you and I on the cast talking, like, what the hell does this mean? Like, what is iconic masters? And like trying to figure out what those cards would look like and, and what that would mean. And we're like, I don't know what cards this set has to have to both be iconic and be compelling for players to pay for. Uh, and it turns out the answer was neither did wizards. Um, so it's sort of a weird product in general. Now there is the, there is the possibility that people stop buying it. It's sitting on shelves rotting and you see those discounts hang around for a while as, um, we saw with something like conspiracy Two, right? Like conspiracy Two has one of the better EVs of any box you could possibly lay hands on right now. Um, it's gotten a little worse over the last six months, but it's still very solid. Um, and you know, it could be that people stop having reasons to be cracking this set. Um, because the thing is that like iconic masters drafts, like you're going to play that at the release weekend for the set, um, at your local store, which isn't, you know, a normal pre-release. It's just, Hey, we've got this in stock. Let's run some drafts for a couple weeks. And that might last a little while, but then like it's overlapping with the draft format for unstable and it's heading into the holidays. People have less money. They got to buy it as gifts. So, I mean, the timing of the release of the set, I think probably plays into why they let big boxes handle master sets all of a sudden, but that's not a good, that's not good news as a vendor. I mean, as an LGS owner, I mean, the master sets were supposed to be one of the exclusive products that you know, your user base has to come to the store to get hands on um, if they don't, you know, aren't smart enough to order online for less or they just like to support their store. Um, but now that it's available through the, the rack jobbers at the big box stores, I mean, you know, what's special about these sets? If they're way below their stated MSRP, if they're available pretty much everywhere, if it's, you know, repeats of cards that accelerate over time where it's, you know, these cards are less and less special because we've seen them more and more frequently. Um, I really think we come back to that, what I was saying to Sig online again this week, that I think where I would be heading with these master sets is that they need to start introducing new cards. Mm -hmm. Like there's just, there's no reason that these have to be reprint only. You can do what they're doing with Commander where you don't have to, you know, retest a whole constructed format or anything because you're not releasing it into the wild for standard, but you're going to put um, 10 new cards in the set. And then that takes some pressure off having to have as many reprints because the, you know, they're taking up slots and 
you know, we've seen cards that have showed up in commander sets that were targeted at other formats, um, like Legacy, you know, True Name Nemesis in the original deck that it was in was kind of like the first big spike from the commander products. And, you know, we've seen other uh, commander specific cards um, push high over time um, as a result of those single printings. And I don't see any reason not to do it. I mean, they've probably got a huge file of cards sitting around that they know could potentially be modern playable um, that they can, you know, slip in there to keep the keep the juices flowing. Because I, I really think that they're facing the law of diminishing returns here. You can every time you go back to this well, the cards you're reprinting have um, been in the wild for less and less time giving them less and less time to appreciate, which will drive prices down for modern staples over time. And that's a good thing. Like, I'm not against that per se. The more people that can play the game more cheaply, the better. But there don't ima- people shouldn't imagine that that also means that that contributes to economic stability for the game. Because first, you have to prove to me that if you're going to cut the price of a modern card on average by half, that you're also going to simultaneously double the number of users, because otherwise the math doesn't work out. So you don't want the overall economy to shrink because trust me, that won't be good for anybody. It, it really reeks of how do we squeeze more money out of things that we've already done? How do we get money out of cards that we've already built, uh, cards that players have already spent money on without having to drum up a whole new R&D process for a new set type of thing, uh, which is really disconcerting when you consider the implications and we've talked about before how so many of their moves seem to be focused on um make, getting more money out of each player rather than drawing new players to the game and how that's kind of a tough a tough road for them to walk uh and kind of bad for the game in general so it just i just it, all of this makes me uncomfortable and in, and in, in what it portends yeah, so I mean, the bottom bottom line is that the the EV on this set is only about somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 to 140. You could get lucky and hit like a $200 in value. You can get a lot more if you get like a specific foil that really matters, like a foil mana drain or something, which is the first time that's ever existed. Um, but it's more of a lottery ticket than some of your other options. And sealed product is just not a great option, period. Um, I'd rather be, you know, getting one of these like $15 off sales on eBay and grabbing a box of Modern Masters 2017 than I would about getting a discounted box of uh, Iconic Masters. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, what else did you want to talk about this week? Uh, Quick note on Bitcoin. If you guys got in when I told you to, you'd be up like 34% right now, which your year over year would be something like 300% plus. Um, It's still the Wild West. It's super risky. Um, we, we can't give you official financial advice anyway, um, despite the whole nature of this podcast, (laughs) but you know, uh, Bitcoin is on a tear and they're, one of the things that's coming up is that the, the futures, um, for Bitcoin are going to be introduced into the markets. I think the first week of December, um, that's going to exert, uh, price pressure on, on an upward trajectory. And because they seem to have escaped the overhang, overhanging shadow of another fork of the software, um, it leads me to believe that this could end up being a 12, ten dollars to $12,000 um, situation for Bitcoin in the next three to four months, something like that. I mean, I, I, I was targeting Bitcoin at 10000 for next fall <laughs> when it was at 4000 in the late summer. 
um, and we're already there, which is crazy. Yeah, I, I um, saw a thing today that it has in the last couple of months, it's had like more than 10 times growth over the best year ever on the stock market for the Dow Jones or something like that. Just like levels of activity and improvement that are essentially without comparison or understanding within modern economics. Um, yeah. And, 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 and the concern here is that this is just the purest form of speculatory bubble ever, right? Uh, well, it's it, like, it it's was like, a, a, a spe- concern about a bubble. Yes. It was couched in that. Yeah. I mean, and, and that makes perfect sense. Like it, the vast, the vast majority of the usage of Bitcoin is buy, hold, flip when it's more expensive. It's the greater fool theory that we've talked about in magic finance for years to the like nth degree. It is like the poster child for the greater fool theory in its current um, use case, because there just isn't aren't that many places accepting Bitcoin yet. There aren't that many people buying things with Bitcoin because everybody thinks it's going to keep going up. So people that hold it don't really want to sell it. Um, And um, people that uh, and businesses are reluctant to accept it because they're not really sure what the regulatory situation is going to be like. So people have reason to be concerned that this is a speculatory bubble. That's not going to stop people from making a bunch of money in the meantime. You just don't want to be stuck getting off that train because this thing can turn around on a dime. Like you can have a, a stock like Tesla drop 15, 20% in a day on some bad news, but Bitcoin can drop 40, 50, 60, 70%. Um, and then rebound again and double up like four months later. So it's you don't want to have any money in it that you can't afford to lose. You, my earlier comments about getting educated about it are uh, quintessential. And the you know have fun if you're in there. Yeah, I I set up a Coinbase account the other day, but it wasn't letting me link my bank account, so I didn't finish the setup. And I think it's gone up like a thousand dollars. <laughs> like yeah. it just yeah, in the crazy. period of time that I've been trying to get the stupid thing to work. Uh, and I, now I'm kind of like, now I, I, I was thinking about, and I'm, this is probably a similar situation as some of our listeners. I was thinking about getting in. I may have taken the first steps, uh, but I haven't quite actually put any money into it yet. Do you, do you still think it's worth it? Do you still think that it's a good buy? I know another, uh, one of the other guys I talked to regularly on the cast um, it was talking about it being like quite a bit more in the future than it is today, but I still kind of wonder, like, I don't know, this seems like the ceiling could be $50,000 or it seems like the thing, the big story of 2018 could be how Bitcoin cratered and made a lot of nerds very upset. Because Bitcoin is infinitely divisible. Like, yeah, there's only 21 million coins ever being issued or whatever, but you can buy fractional Bitcoin. It it's kind of like it doesn't really matter what the Bitcoin costs per se. Um, what there's two major things that need to to be established. Crypto has a future. The blockchain has a future. Whether Bitcoin is the embodiment of that future has yet to be is history yet to be written. Right? Like this was the first Bitcoin was the first crypto out of the gate. It has the most momentum. It has the most uh, distribution and users. The most people mining it. Um, but there are many challengers, Ethereum being kind of the second place one. It's also jumped up recently. Um, but Bitcoin has issues. It's not a perfect software. There are um, 
the core issue at it at play that's generating a lot of politics right now in the community of miners and people that are involved in crypto is that Bitcoin is no longer very good at processing transactions quickly. And so there's a thing called the Lightning Network that where people are trying to assert control um, over Bitcoin uh, by providing external uh, processing capacity. And other people want to just fork the currency to fix that problem and keep it open source. And that's going to be a tremendous battle. People should also not assume that it's going to like displace global currencies anytime soon. Obviously, there are major, major governments and and economic players that will have something to say about that and don't expect them to play nice if they decide that it's a threat to their their livelihoods. Um, you know, there there are many factors that that make it risky. But if you're asking me, do I think it, you know, now that it went from four thousand to ten thousand very recently, could it go ten thousand to twenty in a year? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that like Jeremy and uh, Ed have that bet that it's going to, whether Ed thinks it can hit 25 by next year. Um, and they bet like a suit plus airfare to Jim's wedding or something like that. Um, I don't know if I feel how fun- comfortable I feel with the 25, so, like Ed's side of that. Um, but I would like that bet a lot more at 15 um, or even 20. 25 is a push, um, I think at this point. But it's hard to say like it, the momentum in terms of the uh, the sheer volume of press coverage is really high. And if we weren't living in this crazy Donald Trump universe where he's generating ridiculously like uh, important news stories every five minutes, um, this thing may already have exploded a, to a much greater degree because it's really only waiting for a slow news period to, to get a bunch of stuff um, written about it in the heartland and people start redirecting their accounts. If, you move from futures to your local investment advisor helping people buy it, that's going to be a tipping point, right? Like that's that's a massive growth potential right there. So uh, I don't think it's where you want to have your life savings, but there's always that chance that you could quintuple or, or 10 times your savings profile. And the people that, that take on that risk will have the chance at those rewards and they will also have the chance of going back. Man, that seems like such a... Such a dangerous, uh, and that's not the right word. Such a, such a, a, a catalyzing event where you have this internet currency that feasibly increases in price. You know, at at this point by a hundredfold, like increases a hundredfold from now, and or you know, within three years, and all of these upper middle class people who had some cash to throw at it, dump it in, make a tremendous amount of money from it. Well, everyone who doesn't have that level of disposable income, you know, everyone below middle class just gets completely misses this boat and that gulf uh, widens even further. Oh, that is uh, that is unpleasant. (laughs) Well, first of all, I was looking at a report this week talking about how many institutional investors are already involved. Like people should not assume that the the big money is not does not already have their toes in the water um, because the the total like market capitalization of bitcoin equivalent is bigger than gm now so like this is a huge project it's not just going to disappear overnight like it's going to be you're going to see ups and downs for sure it could be tremendous downs it could be tremendous ups um but it's it's a big deal like people that that matter are paying attention and could you end up with a, a bitcoin millionaire in every neighborhood yeah that that could happen 
um, in the same way that people that invested in Google or Apple really early on and held and, and kept like buying all the way up the ladder have done extremely well for themselves and set up their retirements in, in, in you know, tremendous fashion. Um, it's, the bottom line is still the same. It's super risky. You need to know what you're talking about before you even consider getting in on it. And you are essentially just rolling the dice. Like you, you, you probably don't, even when you've done your research, you probably don't know enough to know what's going to happen or be able to effectively predict. So you just need to do that research to assess the risk, risk factors and decide if you're comfortable with them. Um, I got burned on Bitcoin already once three years ago. I, it cost me minimum ten to $15,000 because my Bitcoin got stolen from Mt. Gox. Um, but I'm still pushing money freshly in this week because I don't think we're done here. It's just I'm, I'm seeing the, sig- the signals that I'm reading say we're, we've got a, a ways to run mm. still. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay. Is there anything else you want to touch on this week? I think that we just should you know, do our part to touch on the whole unsleeved media, Christine Sprinkle debacle. Um, I'm sure everybody's aware of this by this point, but basically our, the preeminent cosplayer in the hobby who Wizards has paid as a subcontractor, I believe, to show up at various events at various points and who has participated in the creation of a lot of uh, magic-related content with people like the, the professor, um, basically said that she'd had enough of all the harassment and bullying she was getting online and she was going to take a break from the whole thing um, and kind of just walk away. And she called out Jeremy over at Unsleeved Media, previously MGG headquarters, who's you know a widely known uh, right-wing troll of sorts, um, who you know creates shit disturbing content just so that he can get clicks, um, and who has offended, attacked, um, degraded, or otherwise interfered with uh, dozens of members of the community, from pro players um, and their friends to content creators and random people that he encounters on social media and Twitter and so forth. And these are the kind of people that are throwing you know terms like beta cuck around like they mean something, and. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think us, both of us included, um, uh, are upset with that situation. And, um, you know, we just wanted to add our voice in support of Christine and everybody else who's had to deal with Jeremy over the years and and point out that <laughs> it doesn't need to be a right-left thing. Like a, a version of magic where everybody is just polite and kind and helps each other out is a reasonable expectation at your local LGS, at your kitchen table. Um, anywhere else you happen to be operating in the world and, you know, to, to take this whole stance of everybody should toughen up. Hey, my version of magic is, you know, I want to say whatever I want to say whenever I want to say it. And, uh, if you don't like it too bad, um, it's just irresponsible. It's, it's irresponsible. It's immature. It's a terrible version of the game. And I don't want any part of that. I, um, I could easily speak at length about the uh, character and greater social implications of this event. I will spare our listeners that diatribe. Uh, If you want more information on the uh, greater political ramifications of this event, I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter, where I spend a lot more time talking about politics and magic at this point. That said, uh, 
while I have never been a individual to engage with the cosplaying component of magic or any other fandom, chasing people down in public and being a jackass for the sake of being a jackass is despicable. This is not a question of free speech or anything. Uh, his defenders would rally behind uh, free speech does not guarantee you the right to be a jackass and make everyone listen to you. Uh, if you are being chased out of a social circle or community for the awful things that you say and do, it is not a violation of your rights. It is you being shown the door because nobody wants to listen to you, which is how society works. <clears throat> yep. So that be- yeah, the, the whole thing is that people can say whatever they want but they can't then expect that there are no consequences. So yes, J- Jeremy should be able to say whatever it is legal to say in the country that he resides. Um, and, but if in saying that he violates the terms and conditions of Twitter or YouTube or the prevalent moral standards of the magic community, then he is subject to censure. And that's not the same as censorship. This is a completely different word that means that he will be <laughs> evaluated for his position in the community and, and will um, be subject to action in return. And uh, in the case of YouTube and Twitter, the, the terms and conditions are relatively clear in terms of his role in the magic community. Like, what can we all really do? Well, you can not watch his videos for once. You can not consume his content. You can not engage in the same behavior um, in his direction that him and his followers have engaged to others. So, you know, I, I've heard that he got death threats. Uh, I think it, you and I can both agree that going after him in the same way that he went after others is not going to solve anything. Um and that we don't support that, uh, right? I am not going to engage on this topic at the moment. Okay. That, that's how I feel anyway. So the um, that civil discourse is in and, you know, voting with your wallet is still your most effective option. You should let wizards know how you feel. You should let you should report anything that you've noted or experienced uh, to Twitter and to YouTube to help them make decisions um uh about his behavior and whether it's appropriate for their platforms you should talk to any and any sponsorships that he might have um that are relevant to the community and you should jostle with other community members and not be silent like if if you see a debate going on or you see this play out in a microcosm in your local lgs where the matter is being hotly debated or somebody's being targeted as a result or um you know, you've just noticed that the play space um, through the filter of experiencing this whole drama um, has given you some fresh insight into what happens in your local play scene, then you should stand up and help fix that in the most productive way that you can manage. Um, I am certainly an advocate for people uh, standing up in their local stores and communities for what they know is appropriate. Uh, My friends in real life will tell you that they wish I would stop engaging on these topics as frequently as I do, because it gets, <laughs> I think a little overbearing at times. We can't even go out for a drink without me yelling about uh, some particular social issue. You don't have to be quite as zealous as I tend to be. Um, but you know, all of this, this change in the uh, improvement of your community starts, starts, starts locally. So please don't hesitate. Agreed. And, yeah. I mean, the other the other angle here that we, we talked about off cast was that um, p- 
people were saying like, what what standing does Wizards even have on his content? Well, they have they have standing because he's a member, a prominent member of the community, and you know they can't arrest him. They're not the police, but they can certainly make sure that he gets zero support from them, that their position on him is well uh, understood and made public, that the expectations for the community are set as as a social contract um, that we could all potentially um, sign on to, um, or many of us may, might choose to, some wouldn't. Um, and, you know, this is part of the normal process of the evolution of, you know, uh, community standards. This is, you know, we are in this hobby, a microcosm of the larger hobby, and these issues are at large in the world as, <laughs> and have been, you know, weighing heavily on everybody's shoulders all year long. Um, and, and, you know, for, for decades and hundreds of years, depending on which angle you're coming from. And, you know, magic may just seem like a silly card game to you. And you might want to just, you know, kick back and speak your mind when you show up at your local LGS. But the reality is that depending on what you say and who you say it to, it can dramatically impact their experience and their willingness and comfort in, in attending those events. So keep that in mind and try to be nice to each other. The, the one other thing I want to point out real quick um, is people expressing uh, unhappiness that Wizards hasn't been quick to release a statement um, or hasn't released any strong enough statements. They did make one brief comment. Uh, Keep in mind that in a situation like this, it's really difficult for Wizards to do too much. Sort of a no-win situation because if they address it really head-on, like first of all, naming names is a terrible idea because of the PR and the, the exposure that it gives um, the, the individual who you kind of don't want to, uh, to give that to is not good for them. And, and, you know, anywhere the, 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 the gap, between the amount of exposure they give him is never really good. So like being really vocal and like, we're going to do this X, Y, and Z ultimately just kind of bites them in the butt. So, I mean, you know, if you follow individual wizards employees on Twitter, you know, that they're all, 110% uh, against this type of thing. And we may have to mostly take that as the sort of official wizard's response because it's difficult for them to engage too closely, I think. I, I suspect we are going to get a stronger statement, actually, because you know the, the reason, one of the reasons they have status here is that Christine is a spokesperson for the game. So, and the harassment that she um, encountered was in, the, in that context. So she, they are potentially uh, liable for what happens to her if she's on, on the Florida GP and is attacked. Um, the internet thing is, is, is uh, <laughs> more nebulous um, and not as easy for them to address, but certainly things that happen in person at events um, where, you know, she was paid to be there. Um, you know, that's absolutely something that their HR department can address in, in tandem with their legal department. Um, the latest update I heard actually was that the one of the most uh, important videos that represented evidence of his harassment, uh, specifically of Christine, has been removed for violating YouTube's policy on harassment and bullying. So for all you people out there that uh, didn't think there was any real evidence or that what he was doing was just jokes, um, both Twitter and YouTube have suspended um, portions of his content or his access to their platforms in, in recent weeks. And, you know, the, how many times does that need to happen before you people can see that this guy is not a positive influence? 
Yeah, and the same could be said about uh, several other, at least one prominent Magic figures. But follow me on Twitter for more of that juice. Um, <laughs> that's a wrap for us this week, folks. James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me, as usual, on Twitter at MDG Critic and uh, via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Okay, and I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday at MTG Price, and I do the Cartel Aristocrats podcast. It's usually Monday evenings. Uh, and also, if you enjoy playing Magic, check out Scry.Land, find Magic in your area. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, that brings us to the end of episode 95. It was good to be back, and I had a lot of fun this week, James. I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.